0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Taking the Leap in MCL
1: New Opportunities with BTK Inhibitors and Other Innovative Strategies. Access the entire activity and complete the post test at peerview.com forward slash YEK 860. Downloadable
0: slides and practice aids are also available. Welcoming you for this satellite symposium, being organised by PeerView, yeah. and this is really focusing on mantle cell lymphoma because a lot of changes have been taken place during the last couple of three months, yeah. and uh, we do see new opportunities with BTKI, and that is our starting point to really reflect what about um, uh, the um, therapeutic algorithm. Now, considering the very recent data, so what's the status 2023? And I'm really privileged by uh, to be joined by really uh, the opinion leaders of the field, and uh, we have with us Cami Maddox from uh, Columbus, Ohio. Cami, good to have you here. Thank you, Uh, and uh, on the other hand, um, Toby, Toby. Oxford, is that Europe or is that US? <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> you ask
1: that
0: you figure out. Anyway, no, they're very knowledgeable. And what we really would like to do, uh, we would guide you through this program. So we have to start with the official label. And the, uh, uh, right now, it's a little bit bizarre because um, in um, the European Union, the only one uh, uh, registered is Ibrutinib. Whereas that was um, withdrawn for formal reasons from U.S. On the other hand, the two other second-generation, Akala and Zanu, um, are registered in U.S. but not in Europe. There are still these phase three uh, studies running. And finally, for Piltoportinib, this is, uh, has been improved, uh, sorry, approved by U.S. after two prior lines of therapy. Including a BTKI, so essentially a BTKI failure patient, um, whereas for uh, Europe, EMA uh, has recommended conditional approval, but it's still not yet there. And finally, Nemtabrutinib is another candidate of this class of non covalent BTKI, uh, is currently in phase two study. Okay. So this is the official registration status, but we all can speak about whatever we would like to. And of course, we start with guidelines because guidelines, uh, um, you know, they try to incorporate all the knowledge we have. And luckily, the NCCN guideline just has been updated. And uh, I really would like to refer to to the, you might say, well, consequence of the Triangle Trial, by the way, um, um, the German Austrian-Swiss guideline has been also published uh, last uh, um, week and is also online with the same recommendation. um, Here it's Triangle Regimen, uh, which supports the combination of a covalent BTKI with chemotherapy, and that holds up for maintenance. Now, interestingly, um, uh, this is an evidence level of uh, uh, 2A for albrutinib, because this is what has been applied in the study, and our American colleagues conclude that it's category 2B for the other BTKI based on, on, on the uh, probably comparable efficacy, but we will hear more about that. Good. What about standard of care in relapsed mantle cell lymphoma? And please be aware that is based on the um, assumption that these patients have received chemotherapy only in first-line. And um, there we have, this is the NCCN, so the American, uh, or better said, the US guideline. Uh, so ibrutinib is uh, not represented here, but uh, I would say probably the first pick is really BTKI. So in this uh, setting, acala and zanobrutinib. Lenalidomide and rituximab is also listed, please be aware. There is this uh, um, uh, first-line study by our New York colleagues from Weill Medical School, Uh, and there's also the option for, and that's based on data by Michael Wong, uh, iBiotinib plus Rituximab. Um, In third-line, this is somewhat open, depends of course on prior treatment, but um, our American colleagues uh, recommend non-covalent BTKI. So at that stage, I would guess most patients have been pre-treated with a classical covalent BTKI or CAR T cells. And of course, uh, which way to go? That depends on your health system, on the patient's performance status, of the aggressiveness uh, of the disease, and we will hear more about that. And finally, this is also important, if you want to win something in mantle cell lymphoma, you really have to focus on the first-line treatment because once the disease uh, is relapsing, it becomes significantly more aggressive and that's even more pronounced for the POT24 um, patients. So the early relapses, here we really have a problem similar to other lymphoma subentities, so there we have to improve before and now this is, uh, and this is especially for patients being pre-treated with BTKi, and you see the slope of the curve even goes further down. So these are really the desperate cases. Now that sets the scenario, what we would like to focus on. So our goal is uh, to improve your understanding of the mechanism, selectivity but also safety profiles of the different BTKi's, uh, we would like to uh, give you an overview about the evidence supporting the use of BTKI and other innovative targeted approaches across the spectrum of mantle cell lymphoma doing both first-line and relapse. And finally, uh, bring you into the position that you can really evaluate the field and, and select upfront and sequential treatment. All right. We're all set. Let's go. And uh, we called it masterclass. And therefore, we start with Kami, and she will really guide us through the uh, understanding the basics and the current role in relapsed uh, mantle cell lymphoma. Kami, please.
1: Thank you, Dr. Dryling. All right. So, Bruton's tyrosine kinase, or BTK, is a critical kinase in the B cell receptor signaling pathway. We know that signaling through the B-cell receptor is important for the growth, proliferation, and survival of normal B-cells, but it's also important for the growth and survival of malignant B-cells. Targeting different kinases in the B-cell receptor, um, therefore, is of interest um, for therapeutic value. So Bruton's tyrosine kinase or BTK inhibitors. There's a number of different oral BTK inhibitors that have been developed. Targeting BTK through these oral um, BTK inhibitors has shown to be effective in a number of different B-cell malignancies, including in mantle cell lymphoma. Ibrutinib was a first-in-class oral BTK inhibitor. It's an irreversible or covalent inhibitor of BTK. It was the first agent approved um, in the U.S. and the only agent approved, uh, as Dr. Dreiling mentioned, in the European Union. So Ibrutinib... um, this is the kind of mapping for the different BTK inhibitors, and ibrutinib not only targets BTK but has some off-target effects, including um, inhibition of TEC kinases, ITK, and other kinases, and these off-target effects lead to some of the toxicity profile we see with these agents. After ibrutinib came the development of the second generation BTK inhibitors, acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib. The second generation BTK inhibitors, as you can see, are a little more selective for BTK, leading to less off-target effects, which has a difference, uh, leads to the differences in the toxicity profiles that we see. More recently, we've seen the development of reversible BTK inhibitors or non-covalent BTK inhibitors that bind at a different binding site. Um, These include nemtobrutinib and probably most recognized as protobrutinib, given it has received recent approval and recommendation for approval. These are even more selective um, for BTK, leading to differences uh, in the toxicity profile of these. So as I mentioned, ibrutinib was the first BTK inhibitor studied and the first BTK inhibitor approved. Ibrutinib's initial approval in the um, U.S. came through an accelerated approval based on a single-arm Phase two study that enrolled 111 patients and showed an activity, an overall response of close to 70%, with a complete response of 20%, and a median PFS of close to 15, 14 months. Um, the approval in other countries came um, mostly from a randomized Phase three trial looking at the randomized patients to Ibrutinib versus temsirolimus, showing a significant improvement in progression-free survival with ibrutinib. Uh, ibrutinib has been around the longest, and we now have long-term follow-up from ibrutinib studies, including um, outcomes with patients who've been treated now for uh, close to 10 years. So this slide shows the outcomes of a pooled analysis of three different trials that treated patients with single-agent ibrutinib. Um, Ray, Spark and the PYCY uh, trial that led to approval in the U.S. So this included a pooled analysis of 370 patients treated across three trials. With nearly 10 years of follow-up, we saw that the median progression-free survival was a little over a year, and median overall survival 26.7 months. However, it was noted that when ibrutinib was used in the second line of therapy, that their median progression free survival was a little over two years and median overall survival five years. It appeared that ibrutinib patients did best when uh, achieving a complete response to ibrutinib with a median PFS of five years and a median overall survival not reached. It was also shown in this pool analysis that uh, with BTK inhibitors, people um, that had POD24 which as Martin mentioned is a poor prognostic factor, did better with BTK than with chemoimmunotherapy. Um, And those patients did better with ibrutinib than the the last treatment that they had received. The second BTK inhibitor to receive accelerated approval in the US was the second generation BTK inhibitor, calibrutinib, and this was based on the ACE-LY004 study. This was another single arm phase two trial enrolling 124 patients, with a median age of 68, and a median prior to therapies. The overall response rate with this agent was 80% with a complete response rate of 40%. We've seen longer follow-up of this phase two trial with a median follow-up approaching 40 um, months. The median progression-free survival was 22 months and median overall survival close to five years. The final covalent BTK inhibitor that's been approved in the U.S. is xanabrutinib, Um, and this was also based uh, received accelerated approval based on a single-arm phase 2 study enrolling 86 patients with relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma. This trial showed an overall response rate of 84% with a complete response rate of 68%, median progression-free survival of 33 months, and median overall survival not reached. I will mention there was a second study looking at xanabrutinib with a smaller number of patients. That was a multicenter study that showed similar overall response rates, although a lower um, complete response and more similar to um, what's seen with the uh, acalabrutinib. So while we know that almost all patients with mantle cell lymphoma are going to respond to BTK inhibitors, we know that the majority of patients are also going to become resistant to those therapies and progress. The mechanisms of BTK resistance um, are overall poorly understood in mantle cell lymphoma. So in CLL, we know that uh, the majority of patients who become resistant to BTK inhibitors will do so by developing uh, mutations in the binding site, um, the BTK-CIS-481, or mutations in PLC-gamma. However, in mantle cell, this is not um, as well understood. There are uh, reports of a small number of the patients who develop mutations in these binding sites, but by far the large majority of patients um, do not develop such, um, such resistance mutations. So some of the mechanisms that are thought to drive resistance in uh, mantle cell lymphoma include uh, some mutations in the binding site, activation of bypass pathways, Uh, such as PI3 and AKT, and then upregulation on survival signaling from the microenvironment. This just lists some of the um, different primary resistance mutations and secondary resistance mutations that have been reported in mantle cell, although, again, um, in much smaller numbers and not consistently. It is important for us to be able to further understand resistance to BTK inhibitors because that could play a role in how we better treat these patients, including how we sequence therapies or combination therapies that are able to overcome these resistance mechanisms. All right. Uh, now, welcome back, Dr. Dryling, for Moving Up Front, New Evidence with Frontline BTK.
0: Okay. So, so, so my um, um, duty is now to report on the role of um, bTKI in first line. What is the evidence? And I will start with uh, um, uh, a company-sponsored trial, which is comparing the classical uh, regimen for elderly patients: bendermastine rituximab plus minus ibrutinib. Very much straightforward, multi-center international trial, and this trial has achieved. Is um, primary endpoint as shown here, PFS was significantly uh, improved, uh, and and that is uh, you know extension of the median PFS in the range of two some two point something years. So that's good. However, the other thing was um, that and, and this is here safety consideration uh, that what has been observed, patients were not. Um, dying of the lymphoma. In fact, if you went to the disease-specific uh, um, overall survival, well, uh, then it was improved, but when you took the total overall survival, um, it was uh, somewhat comparable. What Therefore, it was suspected that additional uh, toxicities may add up. And that is in reflected also by other uh, numbers. Please remind the ibrutinib addition uh, was an unlimited treatment and more patients in the ibrutinib in the verum arm did uh, prematurely discontinue treatment in comparison to the placebo arm. Um, we really had a serious look at the different reasons and there was no clear signal, I have to say, but still the overall frequency of uh, adverse events were higher in the ibrutinib arm. On the other hand, uh, um, uh, PD or relapse were, as expected by the PFS curve, significantly less frequent in the um, verum arm. Now, um, when we look at that and have a look at a similar design for Arcala, and these data have been presented at last ASCO and IHA, um, so we have a, a small cohort with 38 patients exploring the same Principles overall response rate was uh, uh, well in the first line uh, cohort around 94%, then in Selvage 85. Of course, this has to be always considered, taken into account the, the a priori risk profile uh, of the patients, but it's fair to say when we look uh, at the overall survival, it looks promising. Now, interestingly. Um, in this small cohort outcome of relapsed and first-line treatment was similar, whether this will hold up with uh, um, in a, within a larger patient cohort or longer follow-up has to be waited for. Anyway, based on these data, the phase three trial is similar to the SHINE data has been now initiated, uh, the ECHO trial and has been completely recruited and we are waiting for the results. And that is shown here. What you can see is that um, it's almost exactly the same as SHINE trial. Patients above the age of 65 years old with of course uh, histologically confirmed mantle cell lymphoma uh, uh, and have not been pre-treated for this kind of disease. And again, also in this trial, it's an unlimited uh, BTKI treatment. So we did a similar approach and a different approach, depending on your point of view, Um, because we moved to the younger patients and um, uh, this slide nicely um, represents Europe because Europe is never speaking with one voice, but with multiple, at least a dozen, and therefore, we could not agree on the experimental arm, so we added two of them. And one is the classical add-on design, and the other one is the head-to-head comparison, so skipping autologous transplant. And another difference is that we, from the beginning on, uh, went for a fixed duration maintenance of two years. So after two years maintenance, uh, the BTKI was stopped. So let's have a look at the... Uh, Response rates after induction, when it comes to overall survival, uh, sorry, overall response rate, which in my opinion is the more relevant one, uh, it's uh, improvement from 94 to 98 percent. So you could say, well, it's only 4 percent, but in most of our clinical centers, it's hard to get above 100 percent, so that's why, you know, there's a natural limitation. But for CR rate, the benefit was a little bit more pronounced with plus, five, uh, plus 9% from 36 to 45%. And both were, of course, statistically significant. Now, what about the um, uh, primary study aim? And that is here, frequent from treatment failure. Um, it, it highly corresponds to progression-free survival. So there's a difference of a total of whatever seven patients. So this is somewhat PFS curve. Just to let you know, we analyzed also PFS. And anyway, both of the experimental arms were superior to autologous transplant. And why we expected that for the combination arm, and therefore we outlined the statistics to prove that, and the uh, improvement of 15% PFS after three years was highly significant, um, we had a very complicated statistics for the eyebrow-only arm, but you see, by eyeballing, it's exactly in the same range as the combined arm and the same holds up for overall survival. And therefore, um, definitely autologous transplant only is that, uh, if you have the possibility to apply BTKi in your health system. Now the question is, we can turn it around, we can ask, if you have, uh, 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 you know, I have forgiven, what about the addition of transplant Does it add to that? And at least these curves don't suggest that, but uh, it's very few um, um, events so far. What I can share with you, we have a subsequent longer follow-up and the curves look exactly the same. Now, if efficacy is similar, we also have to look into toxicity. And that is shown here. Here is compared with three different study arms and in, in the grass green, it's a combination of autologous plus ibrutinib and in this yellow orange it's uh, ibrutinib only and what you can see is in the combined arm what you may have expected uh, hematological toxicity and also infections are significantly higher so based on that one uh, we would prefer the ibrutinib only and in fact that's what we are doing in clinical routine only in the cases with additional risk factors with high Ki67 or so, there we are uh, not sure and therefore we kept uh, the optional autologous transplant in our current guidelines. And I should also refer to data being presented at uh, this meeting by Michael Wong, the famous Window 2 study, uh, which is starting with a non-chemo approach and then having a high-dose consolidation it will be interesting to compare the toxicity profile uh, of uh, this approach to our study. So th- just to move on, is there a role for skipping chemotherapy overall? So we already kicked out autologous, do we need uh, um, chemo at all? And uh, just to share with you, there are some data on that and this is uh, are the data again by the uh, wild Medical Center being presented at Last Ash, now a triple combination, r square plus arcalabrutinib, and a uh, uh, small study, 24 patients, so this is hypothesis generating, but what you can see, it was well-tolerated and overall response rate was rather high. CR, impressive as well. Now, the other, I would say everyone's darling, is the combination with venetoclax. And our, also here we have first phase 2 studies, in this case, 21 patients again by Michael Wong from uh, uh, from MD Anderson, and here quite similar picture. It was well received, and response rate was v- very high. So just to remind you, these are early phase two studies. In larger phase three studies, this this is normal life. Uh, you know, uh, response rates will go down, and uh, but anyway, this is encouraging. Now. Um, Our French colleagues went on this and then went for the triple combination, right? And this is uh, eyebrow combination with Venetoclox plus the more efficient anti-CD20 antibody in mantle cell lymphoma Obinutuzuma. And again, these data will be updated. Uh, We've seen them at EHA and they look quite encouraging. And uh, um, again, based on this one, uh, is 2 has been activated and this is a randomized trial really comparing uh, this triple combination uh, in comparison to a doublet ibrutinib and anti-CD20 antibody only. And finally, and that is I think the core question, of course, at the end of the day we have to ask, is it better than our current stance? Is it better than chemotherapy? And we have two studies addressing that. One is the British ENRICH trial, and uh, um, Toby may comment on that in more detail but it's fully completed with 300-something patients and we're waiting for the final readout comparing RI versus uh, our chemotherapy, either CHOP or Benamostin. And we have just started this study, first patient's been recruited for uh, now… Um, oh no, this is another one. This is the, um, sorry, uh, the Beijing study and that's similar to the first two company-sponsored trials uh, compares BR versus now again head-to-head IR. And that will be very interesting. So this is a huge study with 500 patients uh, close to uh, uh, full recruitment and these data are eagerly be awaited. And here I hand over to Toby. Toby will uh, allude us what happens once BTKI uh, fail and what can we do then with, for example, non covalent BTKI?
2: Thank you very much, Martin. So as you can see, covalent BTK inhibitors are being extensively investigated in the frontline setting. Of course, that will naturally open up a much larger space in the sort of post covalent BTK um, a- area. And there are a number of agents um, in development here. I've just got time to really touch on three that are probably the most prominent in the most um, in the greatest kind of degree of um, development. So the, the first one um, has been alluded to already. So Pertabrutinib is a highly selective non-covalent BTK inhibitor. It's a reversible um, BTK inhibitor and has very favorable pharmacokinetics uh, with BTK inhibition across the, the, the 24-hour dosing cycle. It's a, it's a once-daily, uh, well-tolerated tablet that's been investigated in the phase one, two Bruin study, as you can see here. So um, this is data from ASH21, ASH actually, 600 and, um, 618 patients. You can see here in the phase 1-2 study, it's actually up to 773, I think, now. Um, lots of CLL patients in there, a number of other interesting histologies, but also um, comfortably over 100 mantle cell lymphoma patients. Um, we saw data on these 111 that were efficacy-evaluable um, at the uh, last year's ASH, but um, most recently we've seen... Um, the pivotal data set which has led to the approval of this agent um, in 90 patients that had adequate follow-up. So you can see here there was a median follow-up of a year here. Um, these are the basic response data. This is a heavily pre-treated patient population, median of three prior lines. Nearly all had received um, immunochemotherapy, including CD20 antibody, and also um, and also all had received a prior covalent BTK inhibitor. Um, nearly, the vast majority having, um, having been failed by the covalent BTK inhibitor because of progressive disease rather than intolerance. And you can see here the, um, the, the overall response rate of nearly 60% with a, S- a CR rate in, in 20% um, in this pretreated treated population. Um, there was a, a smaller sub-study um, of covalent BTK-naive patients um, where 14 patients were treated, and you can see here very high response rates um, with a CR rate of 35% in in that cohort. Here's the duration of response and the um, progression free survival overall. So if you just focus on progression free survival, first of all, you can see you know 40% of patients don't respond, so you get a sharp drop off of the of the progression free survival curve. Um, but actually, interestingly, you know, you see, you see uh, quite, a, quite a few patients with very durable um, responses, and that's really f- reflected by the duration of response. So one of the very interesting things about this agent is, is clearly there are patients who are, hu- who are still very sensitive to very highly specific BTK inhibition in this setting. And actually, a median duration of response of nearly 22 months in that setting is, is very noteworthy. Um, so this agent's been... As mentioned, recently FDA approved in relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma two prior lines or more, including a covalent BTK inhibitor. Um, We're yet to hear about European approval, hopefully um, fairly soon. Uh, Following on on from this, um, the randomized phase three BRUIN321 study is currently ongoing, enrolling, and is challenging covalent BTK inhibition in relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma head-to-head. So this is um, taking patients who have received at least one prior line of therapy, um, have adequate performance status and reasonable blood counts, um, and they are um, they are stratified according to their simplified MIPI score, the intended BTK um, comparator, and the number of prior lines of therapy. And you can see here, it's a permissive study and it's in the control arm in that investigator choice covalent BTK inhibitor can be used. And that's uh, really, to take into account the fact that this is a global study with, um, as Martin has mentioned, different um, covalent BTK inhibitors being available in different nations. This is a superiority design, 500 patients in this study, and it's enrolling well at present. So, um, kind of watch this space for this study in the next uh, couple of years or so. So, moving from a uh, single once a day oral tablet to CAR T cell therapy, clearly very different in their delivery. Um anti-CD19 CAR T-cell therapy is a highly effective therapy in relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma. I'm sure we're all aware of this uh, data from Zuma 2, just under 70 patients heavily pre-treated, as you can see here, median again of three prior lines of therapy. M- many patients have had, had prior ibrutinib, some um, more than one BTK inhibitor, um, and they had high-risk uh, clinical and biological characteristics. And uh, really, at, at the time of this initial publication, standout response rates over 90% and the CR rate, just remember this, um, 67%. Um, we'll come back to that in, in a minute. Um, these responses are generally durable, particularly the complete responses. We've seen um, updated data in the JCO fairly recently uh, showing that those who obtain a complete remission, so those two thirds of patients having a um, a median PFS of 48 months, and we can all debate. It's a shame there isn't a vote on this, um, whether these patients are cured or not. I think uh, time will tell. Um, But you can see here, if you take the whole population, as a whole median PFS of uh, nearly 26 months. Um, But as Cammy will talk about um, uh, later, this comes with toxicity, so a third of patients having grade 3 or more neurological toxicity, For those of you who have treated patients with CAR T-cell therapy, you'll recognize that there's a substantial um, toxicity consideration. Most patients develop uh, cytokine release syndrome with about 15% or so uh, from this trial developing grade 3 or worse cytokine release syndrome. So there are relevant toxicities and clearly there are um, manufacturing considerations and socioeconomic and delivery considerations with CAR T-cell therapy. And just finally, the third treatment modality I want to discuss briefly is um, other, other bispecific antibodies. Um, many of you, no doubt, will be very familiar with Glofitamab from its data, particularly in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma that we've seen prominently uh, presented and published over recent times. This is a CD20, CD3 bispecific antibody. CD20 very strongly expressed in mantle cell lymphoma, of course, um, and that may be a very relevant um, uh, point moving forward in terms of its development. Um, this agent has been um, investigated as, as monotherapy um, with various step-up dosing um, in the um, initial phase 1, 2 study and also with different doses of abinotuzumab to debulk patients before the delivery of the glofitumab. Um, so far we've seen updated data at ASH last year, 37 patients, um, two-thirds approximately of which have received a prior covalent BTK inhibitor. As, as mentioned, a couple of different dosing strategies of abinatuzumab have been investigated really to look at both efficacy and also in potentially mitigating cytokine release syndrome. Um, the response rate overall in the whole 37 patients is um, here, so uh, 84% CR rate in this population, um, including the third of patients that hadn't had a prior covalent to up to 73%. Um, unfortunately, I don't have the slide of those that have had a private covalent BTK inhibitor. But I can tell you the CR rate is identical to CAR T cell therapy, so 67%. And although follow-up in this study is pretty short at the moment, um, the uh, median median duration of complete res- complete remission has been reached at 10 months. But um, there are actually four COVID-related deaths um, in this study, which I think has has made this kaplan marker, curve slightly difficult to interpret. I think probably what's more relevant right now is that 20 out of the 27 um, do remain in a complete remission at, at uh, the data cutoff. So I think we need clearly need longer follow-up and more patients here. But off the back of this data so far, there is going to be a randomized clinical trial, um, which is sort of in setup at the moment in BTK-exposed CAR-T naive patient's um, with glopitamab. So, this this agent is being actively developed further in mantle cell lymphoma. And uh, bring back Cammy to the stage. Cammy's going to talk around safety of some of these newer agents in mantle cell lymphoma. So, thank you for your attention.
1: All right. So, we've heard a lot about um, efficacy, but now we'll transition to safety and toxicity profiles, which can be um, just as important as the efficacy. So uh, we have no head-to-head data uh, or randomized data in mantle cell lymphoma looking at the different covalent BTK inhibitors. As Toby mentioned, there is the ongoing Bruin trial we'll look, which will randomize patients to covalent versus non-covalent uh, BTK inhibitor to better evaluate both efficacy and toxicity. But at this time, um, we only have the data from the single-arm phase two trials. Now, while we don't like to compare um, single-arm phase two trials against each other, This slide does just depict some of the grade 3 or higher adverse events of interest seen in all of the single arm phase 2 trials that led to the approval of the different covalent BTK inhibitors, ibrutinib, calibrutinib, and xanabrutinib, um, specifically differences in neutropenia, major hemorrhage, and atrial fibrillation. I think it's um, also important to note that part of the the difficulty with comparing across trials is that these can have different populations of patients. And so this slide also does show um, the variability in the patient populations treated on these trials um, by median prior lines of therapy um, and median age. So if you look overall, rate of uh, discontinuation due to adverse events 7%, 6%, and 9.3%. So, while we have no randomized data um, for efficacy or toxicity in relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma, we do have randomized data in other diseases comparing covalent BTK to other covalent BTK inhibitors. And I think we can at least um, look at this data to extrapolate for what we're likely to see in patients with mantle cell lymphoma. Um, so we have three large randomized phase three trials uh, evaluating covalent BTK versus covalent BTK, two in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and one in Waldenström's. So the first trial I'll mention is the Elevate RR trial. And this was a trial um, evaluating patients with relapsed refractory CLL um, and randomizing them to treatment with ibrutinib or acalabrutinib. And a medium follow-up of 40.9 months um, these are the uh, toxicity differences between uh, toxicities of interest, including the atrial flutter, uh, AFib, hypertension, and bleeding. Um, you can see that there was a higher incidence of all three of these with ibrutinib um, compared to what was conceived with the calibrutinib. And additionally, there was lower cumulative inc- incidence of diarrhea and arthralgia as well. Looking at rate of treatment discontinuation because of adverse events, it was 14.7 with acalabrutinib versus 21.3 with ibrutinib. The second trial was also conducted in relapse refractory uh, CLL, and this was the ALPINE study. So this looks at the incidence of atrial fibrillation, flutter, hypertension, and hemorrhage um, in relapse refractory patients with CLL randomized to ibrutinib versus xanabrutinib. This has a little bit shorter medium follow up, but a medium follow up of close to 30 months. There was a higher incidence of atrial fibrillation or flutter with ibrutinib compared to xanabrutinib, but rates of hypertension and hemorrhage um, were overall similar. Treatment discontinuation in this trial uh, included 15% of patients discontinuing from AEs with xanabrutinib and 22% with ibrutinib. The last uh, randomized trial was the ASPEN trial, and this was conducted in patients with relapsed refractory Waldenstroms. Again, these patients were randomized to covalent BTK with ibrutinib or with xanabrutinib. Um, This this was uh, reported after a median follow-up of close to 20 months. So you can see the differences here in atrial fibrillation or flutter, hypertension, and hemorrhage. Um, All were um, higher incidence with ibrutinib. This slide also includes neutropenia because uh, there was a um, over double rate of neutropenia seen with xanabrutinib in this trial than uh, was seen with ibrutinib. Looking at uh, rate of treatment discontinuation because of adverse events lower in this um, than the other trials, although uh, a little bit shorter median follow-up than both of the others, 4% of patients discontinued uh, xanabrutinib and 9% of patients discontinued ibrutinib. So looking at um, safety in sequencing, so we know that if patients stop responding to a covalent BTK inhibitor, that treating them with another covalent BTK inhibitor doesn't work. Um, as Toby discussed, treating them with a non-covalent BTK inhibitor appears to um, be efficacious in about half of the patients, but switching from covalent to covalent due to progression um, is not effective. However, we have seen some data sets um, that have looked at patients who have gone off one BTK inhibitor due to toxicity or intolerance and then been treated with a uh, second covalent BTK inhibitor. So again, the majority of these patients are uh, CLL. We have some data with ibrutinib and mantle cell lymphoma. But in CLL, this shows patients who uh, went off Ibrutinib due to intolerance and then sequenced to calibrutinib. Um, of uh, 41 patients, it was 60 patients were treated on this. As you can see, uh, most toxicities of interest, atrial fibrillation, diarrhea, rash, bleeding, and arthralgia. 41 patients of those 60 went off um, ibrutinib due to those toxicities um, and were treated with acalabrutinib. So 24, a little over half re-experienced toxicity, but the majority of those occurred at either the uh, a lower grade and a few occurred at the same grade. Um, and you can see there was a, a lower incidence of atrial fibrillation. Uh, similar uh, data set was xanabrutinib. So looking at patients who received xanabrutinib after going off of ibrutinib and a small number going um, off of ca- calibrutinib due to intolerance. Um, and for the majority of patients who switched, or, uh, switched due to intolerance here, Uh, The toxicity did not uh, recur. So 70% of patients with ibrutinib and 83% of those with calibrutinib did not have recurrence with sanibrutinib. Um, And then there were a uh, small number that recurred at a lower grade um, and uh, a few that occurred at the same grade. And then last is the data from um, the Bruin trial. So this is just, in, in general, toxicity of pertubrutinib. So as we've talked, this is a more selective uh, BTK inhibitor. Uh, so this shows uh, toxicity of all patients treated, uh, 725 patients, most common toxicities, fatigue, diarrhea, neutropenia. And then AEs of special interest are listed. You can see any grade atrial fibrillation and flutter occurred at 2.6%. Um, with one grade 3 or higher hypertension at close to 10%, hemorrhage or hematoma at close to 10%. The median time for patients treated in the overall population was eight months, and the discontinuation rate in this trial due to toxicity was only 2%, with an additional 5% of patients receiving dose reduction due to toxicity. Um, this, again, is the entire population. As Toby mentioned, this was majority CLL, but also included some other B-cell malignancies in a cohort of uh, um, 124 patients with mantle cell lymphoma. Um, but the toxicities across the patients with mantle cell lymphoma were similar to the toxicities seen uh, in the entire cohort of patients. Uh, so it did appear to be representative Now, the Bruin trial, the majority of patients, as was mentioned, had received prior BTK inhibitor. Um, Some of them went off for intolerance, while the majority went off for uh, progression on covalent BTK. There was a small number who went off for intolerance. And this shows um, patients discontinuing that due to toxicity, with the majority of them having no recurrence of the toxicity Um, or recurrence occurring at a lower grade with very few um, occurring with grade 3 or higher, um, suggesting that, you know, these patients, if they switch BTK inhibitor due to to intolerance to one, um, that's a potential uh, therapeutic avenue. So looking at overall, just kind of summarizing the experience to date with the BTK inhibitors, um, particularly some of the selected toxicities. So what have we learned Um, We've learned that um, not to give BTK inhibitors concomitantly with warfarin in the initial trials. um, It did seem that uh, some of the major hemorrhages correlated with the use of warfarin um, in addition to the BTK inhibitors. For those patients who uh, develop new onset atrial fibrillation, you would uh, typically manage this like you would a patient not on BTK and try to um, treat them, manage them um, with rate control, And uh, consider, if they need anticoagulation based on CHAD score, consider uh, non-warfarin anticoagulation with close monitoring. Um, For patients who have recurrent atrial fibrillation despite medical management, that's when you would consider potentially switching um, to a a different BTK. Um, Hypertension, when this occurs, uh, manage with uh, antihypertensives like you would uh, hypertension off a BTK. But again, if this becomes uncontrolled with um, despite good medical management, then consideration of potential dose reductions or transition to an alternative BTK. Uh, manager, uh, we talked about atrial fibrillation and cardiac arrhythmias um, treatment. Monitor pr- for patients for signs of bleeding. Um, most, of these, most of these agents, it's recommended that if patients are gonna have a procedure that the, the agent is held both pre and post a major or minor procedure for a particular number of days. Manager for infections and secondary malignancies. Uh, Headache is a toxicity seen with acalabrutinib. Oftentimes, in my experience, this occurs uh, for patients during the first month of treatment and then will disappear with time. This can typically be managed like you manage other uh, headaches with over-the-counter analgesics and is also responsive to caffeine. And then as was mentioned in the data looking at the randomized data, sanabrutinib does appear to cause a higher rate of neutropenia um, and dose interruption and then dose reductions are uh, considered uh, for this and growth factor support can be used as well. Now let's kind of transition from the BTK inhibitors to uh, uh, safety experience with immunotherapy, which Toby did touch on a little bit. Um, so, first of all, the chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, um, Brexacel, while very effective in relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma, comes uh, does not come without toxicity. So, toxicity unique to CAR T-cell, which we see in other um, diseases um, as well, such as the, the CAR T's used in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, um, cytokine release or CRS and uh, neurotoxicity or immune effector cell-associated neuro, um, neurological symptoms have been reported with these agents. So this uh, slide actually looks at results of um, CRS and neurotoxicity reported in the Zuma-2 trial, but also in a cohort of patients uh, treated after post-approval, um, the majority of who would not uh, met indication for the eligibility for the Zuma trial. So as you can see, uh, toxicity was very similar, all grade toxicity, so neurological events occurred in um, a little over 60% of patients in uh, both this real world data set and in the clinical trial, with CRS occurring in 90% of patients. Looking at grade three or higher CRS, uh, that occurred in 8% of patients in neurological toxicity in a third of patients, as Toby mentioned. Neurological toxicity was the same in Zuma-2, a little bit higher uh, CRS in Zuma-2, but there was a higher use of tocilizumab and steroids um, for management in the real-world population. So while uh, CRS and ICANs are unique toxicities um, to these immunotherapy agents, the other toxicities that we've seen with this of concern, so cytopenias, there's a significant number of patients who can develop prolonged cytopenias, um, infections and hypogammaglobulinemia, um, post-card T-cell therapy. As you can see, the non relapse mortality was 9.1% at one year, and this was primarily due to infectious toxicity. And then... Uh, by, the bispecific therapy, so um, as Toby had mentioned, this looks to be very effective in relapse refractory, mantle cell lymphoma-wide. Do we don't have the numbers or the follow-up that we've seen with CAR T. What we have seen, looks to have very similar um, overall response and complete response rate to that of the CAR T cell therapy, although it does seem that this comes with an improved safety uh, profile. So in the study uh, that he discussed looking at glofitabam in relapse refractory, Uh, mantle cell lymphoma, CRS was the most common toxicity um, occurring in about three, four to of patients, but these were mostly low grade with um, by far being um, most of them being grade one or grade one to two. It is notable, as he mentioned, that while the follow-up is short, during that short follow-up period, there have been four um, COVID-related deaths, something that we've dealt with, unfortunately, over the last few years with a number of different therapies um, but this is, uh, I think, important to know. And I think now we have some cases to discuss.
0: So we thought um, you have now seen really a very comprehensive overview of all the data we are aware of uh, about BTKI. Uh, in mantle cell lymphoma, so we thought we'd bring that now to real life. So we prepared a couple of cases where we can really discuss the details of this. And here we are, um, uh, this is a 60-year-old gentleman with a confirmed diagnosis of mantle cell lymphoma stage 4, uh, uh, which is the most frequent stage in mantle cell lymphoma. He presented with weight loss, fatigue and splenomegaly has an intermediate mipi score and performance status of 1 so based on that presentation what would you prefer or, as uh, the treatment for this gentleman maybe ladies first
1: so it, i think you know for this gentleman there it would be nice to know a few more things maybe uh morphology uh tp53 mutation
0: um, P53 mutation was not analyzed because that was before the guidelines and uh, it was uh, evaluated as a strange classical Montesillum <laughs> form. I mean, this is real life, you know.
1: This is real life. Um, So, you know, historically, my approach to a a patient like this would have been to discuss some sort of citerabine-based induction therapy followed by autologous stem cell transplant followed by rituximab maintenance. I do think that the results of the triangle study, as so nicely presented by you, um, have challenged this thought and really led to a discussion with the patients of that is historically where we've seen Um, potentially the best progression-free survival in mantle cell lymphoma, but we can potentially use BTK inhibitor in this um, with combined chemoimmunotherapy and have favorable outcomes, but with a better toxicity profile. The challenge, like everything we do, of course, comes in um, the logistics and the insurance approval of that, and so I think we're a little bit in the US currently. We don't have approval for frontline BTK inhibitors, but as you saw, it has made it into the guidelines, and so that has um, can allow us at least an argument for such. Hmm?
0: Yeah, Toby, I... w- what would you go for? I mean, you're living in a country where FCR was being tested for a long time as first line treatment. So, what be would be uh, um, let's yeah. say bendamustine rituximab plus VDKI yeah. an alternative?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think at the, at the moment, I would similar to Cami, K- I, I would. Um, Still, still use sotarabin rituximab based induction autologous transplant. I'd like to drop that as soon as a BTK inhibitor becomes as sort of routinely available, um, and then, then rituximab maintenance um, is clearly Im- Im- important here. Um, if 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 I had um, ibrutinib based on the triangle results, I would I would drop the transplant tomorrow. Um, so uh, that, that's sort of my view. Um, I'm very interested to see the results of ECHO. I think you know, cl- clearly we're not going to access um, Ibrutinib based on the SHINE results, but it um, be very important to see the results of ECHO because if the toxicity and survival kind of trade-off is more favorable, then it may be that that becomes a sort of standard option in a, in potentially in a patient like this in the future. So yeah, for now, still a sort of standard induction, but, but if I had a BTK inhibitor, I'd use it to, to drop the autologous transplant
0: but toby i think in great britain you had this special deal at least during covid that you could use btki uh, yeah we it, did
2: we did it's interesting so nhs england funded an off-license medication for um for a couple of years so ibrutinid plus or minus rituximab actually it was very very popular during the sort of depths of the pandemic um so there's actually some data i think at eha so um do take a look there's 150 cases we've got data on I'm suggesting in lower-risk patients uh, it looks very active. Perhaps in higher-risk patients it's not enough. Um, So, yeah, Um, take a look. Mm -hmm. Uh, So another question here
0: is um, what about the long-term follow-up of uh, Cytar followed by an autologous transplant? Can we cure at least part of the patients? That was uh, at least uh, formulated like that by Olivier Hermine the first author of the MCL, a younger trial. After a 10-year follow-up, we are almost doubling page, uh, the number of patients being in constant remission or ongoing remission up to almost 50%. So uh, if you draw the line further, some of these patients won't be treated anymore for relapse. Um, but um, as we have this gentleman now, if your, your health system would allow to apply BTKI in first line. What are what would be the the um, hints uh, really to the subset of patients who uh, especially profit of this uh, b- approach?
2: Should I go first? Well, i I think that's a very open question actually at the moment. Which patients can adequately receive, for example, CD twenty plus BTK? By, by themselves, and which patients require some sort of triplet, I, I, either with another novel agent, so like Venetoclax, or with, um, with chemotherapy, because I, I, I don't think mantelzoliforme is going to c- quite follow CLL in that we're going to be chemo-free quite as rapidly. Um, I think there's still going to be patients that will benefit from, from immunochemotherapy plus um, uh, a BTK inhibitor. Um, who those patients are, it's unclear. I think I think what is clear in the data that we do have so far is that, as I just mentioned, CD20 plus a BTK probably doesn't provide durable disease control in high-risk patients, so blastoid, P53, probably high MIPI, et cetera. So it may be that well, we need to probably see risk-adapted studies a little bit more, Um, not treat mantle cell lymphoma like a single entity, Um, and I'm sure we'll see that more and more. Mm-hmm. Anything to add?
1: I mean, no, I would would agree with that. But I think looking at, you know, the data that if I had the option to use it now, anybody that I would offer, um, you know, more intensive chemo to, I would be willing to add the BTK and, you know, forego the transplant as well. So I think, you know, from what we know, patients that we're going to treat like that, so outside of the TP53 patients, I think, you know, benefit from the addition of the BTK.
0: Okay, so, um, boom, 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 boom. here we are. Oops, sorry. Um, the, uh, these are the conclusions essentially for this. Well, according to my age, I would say medium age, gentlemen. Um, uh, there are multiple options you could consider. And I think what we didn't touch so far, it's really, you know, your individualized treatment of the uh, patient performance status. Uh, the risk factors of the disease as you were trying to, to figure out and, of course, uh, according to your health system. Uh, it's fair to say that we, so far we have these phase 3 uh, results for, for ibrutinib with two different combinations, uh, um, chemotherapy combinations, but we are uh, eagerly waiting for the final date of the other second-generation BTKI. Now, let's make Patrick uh, 14 years older. Uh, And otherwise, little is changing. So now we are talking about a uh, 74-year-old chap. He's reasonable well. He's uh, um, exercising um, regularly every day, 30 minutes. But exercising means for him walking around in his neighborhood. And so would that change your approach in this uh, patient in any way?
1: I mean, I think so ideally this is the kind of patient that I'm going to get on a clinical trial with a, a non-chemo uh, chemo backbone uh, or combination. I think, you know, options for this patient, we don't, again, have approval of a frontline BTK inhibitor uh, in the U.S., but it is in the guidelines so you can use potentially um, rituximab plus BTK or we even have some data on uh, rituximab and lenalidomide in this setting. I think getting the patient on a trial with, you know, BTK, doublet, or triplet would be of high interest, and that's what I would really encourage a patient to do if I had, um, had the availability of such. I think in a patient like this, treating them with a less aggressive chemo backbone is reasonable. Um, we frequently use um rituximab in this situation, um, and I think that that's perfectly appropriate here as well.
2: Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I, I think outside of clinical trials, we're still using chemotherapy as standard of care in this group. We're waiting for studies like the enriched studies you mentioned, Martin. Sort of comparison studies in these kind of patient populations. Um, but yeah, BR with or without maintenance, and or maybe even RCHOP plus maintenance, still very effective mm-hmm. in certain patients. So yeah. um, those would be the options I would use outside of clinical trials. But I agree. I mean, if you've got a Got active novel novel agent combinations, then of course in in relevant patients, I'd like to use that. As well. So
0: that's interesting. What drives your pick towards either bendamustine or <laughs> the shop as a chemotherapy backbone?
2: It's a good good question. I I I think I think he, we we don't have a lot. We don't have head to head data of, of of those agents in mantle cell lymphoma with. Maintenance in both arms. Um, we know that the European mantle cell lymphoma network study for RCHOP followed by rituximab maintenance, actually, median PFS is over five and a half years. It's, it's reasonable. So uh, I, I would use some patient factors, comorbidities, etc, to, to, uh, to determine which one of those I use. But I, I tend to use more a little bit more bendamustin than I do RCHOP. And, and what about VR
0: chip, at least in Europe? It's registered, I don't know, in U.S. similar?
1: Yes, similar in the U.S., and I was going to say that would be another um, option potentially. Um, you know, I, I agree there isn't great data to push you one way or other, but maybe in a patient who, um, you know, had aggressive disease behavior, high KI-67, maybe you would use um, hmm. take that approach with chemo.
0: So there, there are also uh, questions in the chat. So... Um, it's not that easy to com- bri- uh, combine ibrutinib with, or any other BDKI with whatever chemotherapy. So uh, our French colleagues performed uh, the Biblios trial, which was a phase 1-2 study combination of rd plus ibrutinib, and that was stopped early because of cutaneous uh, toxicities, also thermocytopenia. So for the time being, you only ha- have clinical experience for the combination with either R-CHOP or with BR, just to mention that. Me personally, uh, um, let's say if I have a case with Blastoid Mantle for and Ki67, let's say around f- 45%, I would not go for Bender Mistine, I have to be honest. Um, but here's the question from the chat. Um, uh, I'm really very concerned with the use of uh, Bender uh, in mantle cell lymphoma, since Bendam is an enemy of T-cell and can cause T-cell depletion and consequently affecting the success rate of CAR T-cell. So m- my question is, um, do you consider that... Um, I'm out because I'm saying, well, I, I don't use uh, Bendam in the high-risk patients, right? So it's your question. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really important question. I think we need more data, certainly. I mean, we are seeing signals of of differences in T-cell expansion and potentially efficacy in patients who've received very recent bendamustin, so within six months, some series, within 12 months, others. I mean, you've got to to remember that most patients will have a reasonable reasonable response and duration of response. following frontline and then most places around the world you've got to have exposure to covalent btk inhibitor before car t as well so uh, most people will gain you know at least six months as a minimum from covalent btk inhibitor so based on that it's quite unlikely that that a lot of patients would have relapsed and be car t cell eligible within a really short period of time i do appreciate there are cases where that can can occur um but of course the trade-off there is it's a highly effective regime and it's been used as a sort of standard of care arm in lots of clinical trials over recent time. So um I I would still still use it, but if I had somebody who had a TP53 mutation in the frontline setting and I knew about it, I probably would avoid it because we know from we know from the the cohort in Shine that their median PFS is under a year and BTK inhibitor's median PFS in that setting is about four or five months. So well, at least the Um, So I think, you know, avoiding bendamustin frontline there, I think might be appropriate, but um, I think that's still very much open to debate.
0: Mm-hmm. So I, I, th- I would like to, to wrap up this part of the discussion that uh, in fact, in this patient, the individualized treatment options become different because we're you know we don't want to harm our, our patients. And so far the data sets we have uh, the one set out is the SHINE trial, but similar study is now going on with ECHO and the head-to-head comparison, which is uh, really uh, proving the principle of a non-chemo approach, uh, the mangrove and, and, and Rich. we're eagerly waiting for the results. Now, to move on, the, on that, let's say we have one patient from a institution, that's Susan. And Susan is, is 70 years of age. Uh, she had at initial presentation a I 67 of 40%, which means high risk, and therefore can be, uh, um, you know, decided to uh, enroll her in a clinical trial with a covalent BTKI plus R. And important for this setting, the BTKI is continuous until until progression. Now. Susan is uh, 74 years, so I would say for a case with TI 67 or 40%, that's a success, a four-year remission. And she again presents with weight loss and abdominal pain. And PET-CT shows uh, a progressive disease in in both the thoracic and abdominal region. So, um, Kemi, as this is your patient, what are you doing now?
1: Yeah, so I think the first thing I'm going to do is Susan 74, so I'm probably going to just assess if I think she's a candidate for CAR, and I'm going to try to get her to CAR if she is a candidate for such. I think if I have a um, trial looking at a bispecific antibody or bispecific antibody combination, that would be really great, but off trial, I'm going to try to get her to CAR if she's a candidate for that. Most likely, it sounds like from her symptoms and um, disease, she's going to need some sort of bridging therapy to that CAR and is probably not going to get to it without. So I'm probably going to try to transition her to a non-covalent BTK with pertubrutinib, which we now have available, um, collect her and um, take her for CAR. I think, you know, there's also the potential to bridge her with something like steroids or radiation, but... Um, you know, if I could get away with that, uh, that would also be a potential option. If she's not a candidate for CAR, I think that the best data we have outside of, you know, by specific trial is the non-covalent BTK, uh, pertubrutinib in these uh, BTK progressors.
0: So there's explicitly questions for you, which is uh, for CAR T-cells, is that easily available in, in U.S.?
1: So easily available, kind of. I think that's a hard question. I mean, the patients have to be able to, at my center, yes, um, you know, but I'm in an area where not everybody wants to, you know, come to the center or not everybody um, has the, the resources. There are intense resources, especially after the car, that patients need to have um, family support and the ability to do so. So I would say, you know, if somebody wants to, it desires that we can get them through that. There isn't really an age cutoff um for a car per se. Um, you know, we've done patients, I think the um, I forget 80, 80 something was the highest in the um cohort of patients that was um reported in the in the real world data. Um, but there is, I mean, there certainly is the the toxicities are real and they have to be considered.
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think the question is car fit or not, uh, or suitable, I should say, or not. Um, we may be faced with a, quite an interesting scenario in Europe and the US fairly soon if perturbrutinib is um, is approved in Europe, because the approval might be actually slightly broader than the US approval, and the reverse is true for CAR-T. You can use CAR-T in the US second line, whereas in Europe we can't. So with sort of my UK-European hat on... Um, I. You know, maybe this, for example, perturbrutum is available second line um, in, in the future. And actually, she might be good, good, a good candidate for that. Having said that, she's chemotherapy naive, I think. So going back to something like kind of RCHOP prior to, or RCHOP with Cytarabin or something prior to then thinking about CAR-T third line might be a reasonable option as well. We don't have any data on chemotherapy second line after covalent BTK 2 k frontline. And we need to kind of understand its role there as well, I think.
0: There are these uh, fabulous, uh, in fact, R-back data oh, with just, a response like rate of more yeah. than 80% in and, the setting. So yeah, what so, would be your favorite bridging to CAR T cells? Because normally these are rapidly progressive. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So I think, I think it depends how quickly you can a cells and whether you, if you can do that quickly and then using potentially R-back, I feel a little bit nervous in the 74-year-old to do that. It's, it's quite a punchy regime and you might have to dose attenuate. Um, but it's, it it is potentially an option um, if they're if they're arac and bendamustine naive. It's it's highly effective.
0: And uh, then one question too uh, concerning the data you presented concerning pirtobrutinib. The question is, did the results differ on the kind of covalent BTKI <laughs> being applied previously? This is a very uh, knowledgeable it's a, question. It's a good
2: question. Um, to my knowledge, the vast majority of patients have received ibrutinib previously. There are very few that were. A acalabrusinib, xanabrusinib. So in terms of a detailed breakdown according to prior covalent BTK, it's, it's, uh, we, we, haven't, we haven't seen that and there aren't many patients that didn't have abrusinib. So I don't think we'll have that data from, from the first part of Bruin.
0: Okay, I think uh, this patient shows that it will become much more complicated concerning the Uh, therapeutic algorithm, the sequential treatment with a new first-line treatment, Uh, what we can conclude another covalent BTKI, you have not heard about that, and the reason is the resistance mechanisms for ibrutinib are uh, relevant as well for at least the second generation uh, BTKI, so it does not make sense to move from one to another. Um, We have the broader uh, uh, option and uh, the broad approval in US, uh, and, uh, um, the non covalent are also approved in US. So you're living in the paradise, Kimmy. So, so <laughs> uh, which patients you would refer to right away going for CAR cells? What would be your trigger? You said fitness, but would you all fit patient then, uh, move on to CAR cells or? in second line, now in this scenario?
1: I mean, no, I, so I would say that still I standardly use a BTK inhibitor in the second line. The patients that I'm really thinking about, they need a CAR, those patients with TP53, high KI67, blastoid disease, they don't do as well with BTK inhibitors alone. Um, and we know that at least in the numbers in the Zuma trial, they look like they have um, you know, similar responses as the efficacy population to CAR so those patients, I mean, I, you're, I'm still bridging them, but I'm prescribing a BTK and getting them ready to go to CAR.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and last question, which I think is, is a very challenging. How would uh, the detection of a P53 mutation drive your decision in any way?
2: In the frontline setting?
0: In this patient.
2: Okay, I mean, if it, if, it, if it was picked okay, if it was picked up in, in, in relapse, so at biopsy or relapse, then I think that would trigger uh, getting to CAR T probably as quickly as possible, although, of course, some of the real world data doesn't look quite so promising in terms of progression-free survival with, with P53 mutation deletion. The initial responses from the Perspirationtive study look, look, look good. They look barely equivalent. Um, but obviously, not a lot of patients. Again, so so um, concluding too much from from that subgroups a, a bit difficult. But um, I think I'd be aiming for car. car.
0: Mm-hmm. I fully agree. So so P fifty three mutations are really the red traffic light. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have to speed up. Um, so um, please have a look at the uh, or suggested. Algorithm and then we have another poll to um, check whether you have um, no. Just kidding. Um, this is, you know, what you can make up, and, and I, I think it's it's very fair to say yeah. we don't treat all patients the same. Might it be for the patient's fitness, and might it be also for the disease, the underlying disease itself, and uh, in relapse, it in future time it will become even more complex in that way that we have to differentiate between prior BTKI use, uh, yes and no. And then the, uh, the next uh, complex or, or, or situation is, is what are we doing in these patients after triangle after fixed duration BTKI when relapse is uh, uh, occurring rather late or early. So life becomes more complicated for our patients, but also options are uh, becoming more various and, and I think that's the best we can hope for um, in the interest of our patients.
1: This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash YEK eight six zero. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca.